Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Now we want to turn to electric cars and specifically uh, Salim Morsi, advanced transport analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. There's a new forecast coming out uh, or that has come out, I beg your pardon. And Salim, maybe you could uh, go ahead and tell us uh, the genesis of this report. And when do you think we'll all be driving electric cars? Hi, Pim. Thanks for having me. So we, uh, we, we took a, a very basic observation, which is the, the, the fact that the price of batteries, the price of batteries, the stuff that Tesla puts in its cars, is falling rapidly. It's fallen 75% in the last six years, and we expect those, uh, those prices to continue down. And so the impacts of this trend are profound and wide-ranging. And uh, we think that by 2040, about half of all cars sold globally will be electric. In other words, we'll have a plug on them and we will be phasing out uh, internal combustion engines. The phasing out of internal combustion engines has got to come not only with the lower cost of batteries, but an infrastructure in the country to be able to support that kind of electrification. That's that's absolutely correct. So it's 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 a it's a it's a vertical. It's kind of a tangential uh, requirement for EVs to scale up. And we see a lot of investments today in infrastructure. The one you, you probably have heard of is the t- Tesla supercharger. But many other stakeholders are investing in this. And certainly, we we think that um, there will be sufficient infrastructure to get to a uh, market penetration of over 50%. But our forecast is actually capped because of this hurdle. We think that rural areas uh, in the developing world or, or, or uh, cities without the proper kind of urban infrastructure w- with multi-dwelling units will suffer. And as a result, even though the, the attractiveness of the purchase makes sense, uh, the refueling component, in other words, the charging, will still be a, a hurdle, we think, in the future. Is there a technical obstacle that you can see that would prevent independent charging stations drawing solar power and converting it into battery technology that would then sort of obfuscate the need for this you know, network of delivery and so on? So solar, it's certainly a top of mind for many, uh, for, for many folks and storage. Like, like Elon Musk, that's why right. I went there. Exactly, exactly. So, so the, the value proposition that, that Tesla puts forth is that you know, solar charges their stationary storage, which is then used uh, off the grid to charge batteries. That there's some value to that. But remember, when we're talking about charging cars, we're, we're talking about significant amounts of power. And the requirements for the storage and the solar grow exponentially exponentially uh, as uh, the car fleet and utilization grows. So if you take one car, maybe that's feasible. If you have 100 cars charging, you need a lot of solar and you certainly need a lot of batteries to dispense all that energy back into electric cars. What role does the Model 3 play in all this? From, so, tes- from Tesla. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're coincidentally, our report is coming out at the month that uh, Tesla is launching their Model 3, and it's certainly their flagship uh, product. You've seen their sales kind of, I guess, disappoint Wall Street with regards to their guidance, and certainly Model 3 would be the, the product that carries them to 500,000 units a year if they do hit that. And so, 
it's an important release because it is a, what we call a down-market product. It's a more affordable product, and certainly we think that uh, should the Model 3 sell well, you know, in the U.S. we're talking over 100,000 units a year, it will usher in, you know, it, 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 will, it will signal, I think, to uh, entrenched uh, incumbent OEMs, auto OEMs, the Fords, the GMs of this world, that really electric vehicles are not just some compliance, uh, regulatory compliance product, but really a product that, that the mass market uh, wants and, and uh, for which there is a lot of demand. So I think it's a, it might be a seminal moment in this market. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing some of this information with us. It's a wonderful report. I recommend it to anyone that wants to know about the electric uh, vehicle market and also the hybrid vehicle market. Salim Morsi is our advanced transport analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Well, you know, the uh, Institute for Supply Management, the non-manufacturing index for June rose to 57.4. Now, the estimate was for an increase to 56.5. Well, readings above 50 indicate growth. Well, does this make it more difficult for the Federal Reserve to decide when to begin the unwinding of its balance sheet and the timing of interest rate increases. Here to tell us more is Terry Wiseman. He is Global Interest Rates and Currencies Strategist for Macquarie. Terry, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. All right, so you got the ISM number coming in better than estimated. Uh, you've got the jobs report, the, pay, the non-farm payroll report tomorrow, 8.30, live here, always on Bloomberg. Um, what, what do you think is going on in the minds of policymakers? I think what's more important, or what is becoming more important, Pim, is is not so much the the rate of job growth. The last few years have seen steady job growth. Um, what I think is becoming more important with respect to the job market is the unemployment rate, because I think that the Fed has not moved away from the view that conventional measures of labor market tightness, like the U3 unemployment rate, like the U6 unemployment, are valid measures of labor force tightness. And if they believe that, and I think there's no reason for them to not believe that nor to have suggested that they wouldn't believe this, uh, it is the case that the unemployment rate now at 4.3% is at their projected median. It's possible that it drops even further with the employment report tomorrow. And I actually think this makes the Fed's job easier, to reference what you asked earlier. The Fed's job will be made easy by a 4.2% unemployment rate, i.e., they should be raising rates at these levels, especially levels of the unemployment rate that are below their long-term average and at or slightly below their median projection for 2017. Is that what the bond market is telling you as well? The bond market is not necessarily, well, if you're looking at 10-year yield, yeah. that's not necessarily a good tracker of what the Fed uh, is going to do. That's really a good tracker of what the market thinks the Fed is going to do over the next 10 years. Uh, when you look at where implied the implied probability uh, uh, of the Fed funds rate is uh, across the next six months, the market has, I agree, has not yet uh, uh, anticipated a fully-fledged anticipation of the Fed raising rates this year. I think the implied probability is about Why is that, do you think? Is, is it because the actual constituents that make up the bond market uh, have never been in a rate-tightening cycle before? No, I, I don't think that. I don't think so. I think that in normal times, this is the 
this, these are the types of economic outcomes and economic circumstances where the market would be much more confident about the Fed moving forward with rate hiking. Uh, what I point to, however, is a lot of doubt on the part of the market as to whether or not the inflation drop that we saw in the first quarter of this year is, in fact, going to be transitory. There's obviously a lot of doubt. Do you believe it will be? I do. I, I, I believe that oil prices, having dropped as much as they have in the last few weeks, is going to sustain low headline inflation for the next few months. And I believe this is not something that the Fed normally or would have anticipated, let's say, back in June or back in March when they've been, you know, and, and over the last few months, let's say, when they've been talking about transitory inflation. However, this is still a one-off in the sense that it's created by one thing. Wages, on the other hand, are higher or going higher. Uh, materials costs are not necessarily being driven down. Operating margins in the new economy are low, but ultimately companies like Uber and all of these other companies that are competing for market share against the old economy are going to have to raise prices. So my sense is that we can see a few more months of low inflation, but it's not the kind of situation that's going to deter the Fed from raising rates. Okay. Well, uh, as we speak, the long bond is down 1 and 12 30 seconds. We are now at 2.91%. So uh, clearly someone's listening to the same tune that you're playing. Well, at least today. Keep in mind right. that the data in the last few days has actually been good for the U.S. We got the manufacturing ISM last week. It, were, it was solid. We got the non-manufacturing uh, this week. Actually, we got it before the holiday. We got the non-manufacturing this week. It was also solid. But every other survey-based indicator of the economy is strong. You look at the NFIB hiring plans index, uh, well above the average of the last decade during the the, the go go years, um, other surveys, um, uh, you know the 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 you know when you look at the Gallup surveys of of of, of what of well also a bis- some kind of business hiring, optimism as well, it, it, small I, I, and mid sized business absolutely. optimism. I would caution, however, that a lot of that optimism from the part of businesses is yes. due to the new administration and tax cuts. But but that none, may or may not materialize. May, not, may, not mater- may or may not materialize, and the Fed is not taking a stance on that yet, based on what we read in the minutes uh, this week. However, hiring plans, forget investment plans for a moment, which would be more sensitive to tax uh, reform and tax policy, hiring plans are solid. I want to turn your attention now to this uh, connection that exists or that, you, that you're going to tell us about, the connection between oil prices and interest rates. And uh, one of the things that oil prices right now crude, 45.84, all right, so it's up 71 cents. And it makes it look really big because it's a one and a half percent move, but you know it's still seventy cents, forty five dollars eighty three. Gasoline prices are, I understand, nominally the same as they were in two thousand and five. Do low gasoline prices buy countries like the United States a lot of time in order to make that switch, that which seems to be slowly happening to hybrid and electric forms of transport? Well, if you're, if you're asking, do low gasoline prices deter people from making the substitution into non-oil-based technologies, I would have to say the answer is yes. As long as oil prices are low and hydrocarbon prices are low, there's going to be a slow movement rather than a rapid movement. But it's happening in parallel, right? I mean, that's it, the, it, that's it, the it, irony. Is, and you, it, Volvo just coming out and it, saying they're going to do it, hybrid it, and electric it, it, and it, that's, Tesla. That's right. But I think these companies are looking more towards the long term and, and the regulatory basis for trying to undo the dependence on, on hydrocarbons in this economy and other modern economies. This is th- what they're doing has little reference to oil prices over the last few years. I would say, however, that if oil prices had, stay at, had, had stayed as high as they were in late 2014, uh, before the OPEC supply uh, increases and the news regarding that, I think there would have been even slower adoption of these of these uh, of these technologies. I'm sorry, more rapid, rapid adoption, yeah. of, uh, adoption of these technologies. Um, 
oil and interest rates. So there is a correlation. I mean, I mean, take a look at just the past 12 months, uh, the, the period that we can most easily remember because it's still still embedded there, hopefully. If you were looking at the middle of 2016, there were also a lot of doubts as to whether inflation could go up because oil prices were kind of in the dumps. And then starting in the third quarter, we got a rally in oil prices. And we also got a rally in, in inflation. It may have been temporary. It may have only lasted until Q1 of this year, but it happened. And now look at the chart on bond yields. You saw that bond yields actually rose during this period of rising inflation, starting in Q3 and into Q4 and early Q1 of this year. So just on the on the base of that anecdotal evidence, I would say that, yes, there is a correlation. The fact that oil prices have gone down again recently may cap bond yields into the end of this year because we're going to continue to see the effect of that drop in oil prices into the data into the end of this year. But that's not going to deter the Fed again from raising rates. All right. We're going to look forward to that July meeting that's coming up next, right? Absolutely. we're going to pay attention to. You'll help us do that. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Terry Wiseman is the Global Interest Rates and Currencies Strategist for Macquarie, giving us his view on the connection between oil prices and interest rates. Well, President Donald Trump is headed to Hamburg for the G20 meeting, where he will meet with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And one of the topics most likely will be North Korea, here to help us understand what is going on and the possibility for some kind of action is Tom Orlick. He is our chief Asia economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Tom, thanks for being here with me in the studio. You know, uh, the the... There always seems to be a little bit of a battle between, you know, there's an ideological confrontation that goes on, but then everyone ultimately says it's always about the money. And I'm wondering if you could describe, is it effective to try to isolate North Korea's economy based on what you know and based on the trading patterns that exist in Asia? Well, I think the interesting thing which has happened in the last few months is that We've seen an unprecedented move by China to put the economic chokehold on Pyongyang. Um, North Korea's financial lifeline, their economic lifeline, is exports to China. And in those exports, coal is a very significant component. If you look at the numbers, coal exports from North Korea to China have gone to zero in the last few months. So they have followed through on a request, I believe, that was part of a conversation between President Trump and Xi Jinping when he visited. They followed through on their commitment on um, embargoing coal imports from North Korea. Um, now, the question in my mind is, why has the timetable moved forward so aggressively? Clearly, a move like effective economic sanctions is not going to play out in terms of a change in North Korean behavior immediately you would want to see a period of time to allow that to play out in terms of a shift in thinking in Pyongyang. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Based on your experience in the region, is that likely to happen? That is the, um, that is the unpopular. I mean, do we have any evidence that the leader of North Korea has ever changed his behavior and the behavior of the country because of outside pressure? That is a very good question. Um, and of course, even if... China follows through on effective economic sanctions, that's no guarantee that it's going to deliver the results which the US and China and everyone else in the world wants to see, which is a more rational North Korean regime. It's possible that it could have an unintended consequence. 
That unintended consequence could also come with military action, couldn't it? So we're straying a little bit far from the field of uh, economics into uh, into international relations. Uh, but yes, clearly that is one of the risks. All right. Tell us about the Japanese participation in all of this, the Japanese economy. And it is not monolithic in the sense that it's all in Japan. I mean, the Japanese uh, multinational corporations have business all around the world and specifically in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the whole security dynamic in Asia is how it's playing out in terms of economic and financial consequences. Uh, we see that in Southeast Asia, uh, where China's moves as part of the Belt and Road Initiative have prompted a response. Tell people about that, why that is uh, of paramount interest if you are interested in business in Asia. So the Belt and Road Initiative is China's big foreign policy push. Um, it's their attempts to ratchet up their political influence in Asia um, and the and the surrounding regions uh, by amping up spending on infrastructure. Um, now, for Japan, this obviously is a source of tension, uh, and the happy consequence of this for Southeast Asian nations is that they find themselves the center of a tussle for influence between China and Japan, both of which are pouring money into the region uh, to try and win friends. I want to talk about money, but money that is here in the United States, and it has to do with steel, because there have been many attempts by uh, steel companies in the United States, some of them anyway, uh, to have the administration work for increased tariffs of imported steel. But all steel is not the same, and I'm wondering if you could give us some details. That's right. So... um We've seen tariffs bubbling up the agenda again. Uh, one report in the press said that President Trump was hell-bent on imposing tariffs on steel. Um, one of the targets for that could be China, which is viewed as dumping steel at bargain basement price prices on global markets. Um, I think this is one of a number of indications that the trajectory on US-China relations is looking a little bit less negative. Um, the big picture, though, I think, is that relative to where we were at the end of 2016, when Donald Trump was talking about a 45% tariff on all Chinese exports, the current situation is actually still pretty positive for China. Well, in that, in that vein, I'm, I'm wondering if the Chinese have already, as you said earlier, followed through with their plan to cut off coal imports from North Korea, do they expect a quid pro quo from the Trump administration on these kinds of trade tariffs? You know, it's very hard to see into the mind of the uh, the Chinese administration, and I, I wouldn't claim to know what they're thinking. Um, but I imagine that in Beijing right now, there's a, a certain amount of puzzlement. Um, the conversation between Trump and Xi in Mar-a-Lago seemed to go very well. The Chinese now talk about the Mar-a-Lago consensus. Since then, if anything, China has over-delivered relative to expectations on North Korea. They have followed through on that embargo on coal um, imports. And yet the response from the U.S. Uh, has become um, more, uh, there's become uh, more friction has been added to the relationship. Right. It's been more fragmented to a, to a certain, but is it actually referred to as the Mar-a-Lago consensus? Yes, I believe uh, I believe Xi Jinping has spoken about the uh, as has has spoken about negative elements 
damaging the Mar-a-Lago consensus. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, at the same time, the dollar has weakened against the uh, yuan, the uh, renminbi, the Chinese currency, which is uh, one of the other things that the United States was for. Yeah. So this is part of the general positive bigger picture in U.S.-China relations following the, the Trump administration. Uh, Trump came into office warning uh, that he would name China a currency manipulator. That hasn't happened. Thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. Tom Orlick, he is our chief Asia economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Orlick, O-R-L-I-K. You're listening to Bloomberg. Thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. That's about how long it would take a nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missile that's launched from North Korea to reach Los Angeles. Thirty minutes. Eli Lake is a Bloomberg View columnist, and our topic is North Korea. And Eli, we don't want those thirty minutes to ever become part of history. We just rather have them be a sentence. is it possible that North Korea will have nuclear capability to deliver internationally, intercontinentally, before Donald Trump even completes a first, uh, a one-year, you know, four-year term? Yeah, there are a lot of estimates in the U.S. intelligence community, uh, and I don't put much stake in that. Usually, those estimates are wrong. Um, and I would also point out that there are things that the U.S. can do to purchase time on this, and that is you can sabotage, you can do cyber attacks like what was done against the Iranian program in 2009. Um, so it's hard to get into that, but I do think that it's, it's now a point where the, what we know is the North Koreans have mastered the fuel cycle. They can produce um, weapons-grade uh, material for a bomb. They are coming dangerously close to mastering the ICBM technology and multi-stage rockets that can travel a long distance. And we know that it's once you've got those two legs of the stool, it's easier to then miniaturize um, the uh, nuclear material so into a warhead so that you can deliver that uh, with a missile. So that, this is the problem, I think. And, um, you know, it's, and so it's, it's probably not right to get into timelines at this point, but they're getting very close, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to start dealing with this. No good options. That's right. What are some of the no good options? Well, um, you know, I don't think that this is really an option, but you could go to war with North Korea and risk the incineration of Seoul, um, because we know that there are thousands of mortars that are on the demilitarized zone, and they would be fired if there was any kind of an attack. Um, But... uh, and I don't think that that's something that would get any support, really, in the U.S. at this point. I don't think it's something that Donald Trump would want to do. He, he sort of campaigned against these like large-scale interventions. Um, you can buy time with sabotage, but that's not really a solution. It only kicks the can down the road. Um, but the notion that, and this is what I wrote my column about yesterday, the notion that you can negotiate with the North Koreans and get them to the position that is the goal of U.S. policy for a quarter century which is to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, is at this point that, you know, that train has left the station. The North Koreans will not give up their quest for a nuclear weapon. It's not on the table. And they correctly, I think, understand 
that their development of a nuclear weapon is a key to their regime's survival. And this goes back to um, the broad outlines of the deal that was offered in the Clinton administration and what was known as the Joint Framework Agreement, is that we will uh, help your regime survive if you abandon your nuclear program. And what ended up happening was uh, the North Koreans cheated. Uh, there was hemming and hawing, but largely every American president sooner or later pursued some kind of negotiation with them. And those negotiations have failed. The North Koreans have purchased time, and they're very, very close at this point. So it requires, I think, a new, uh, you know, kind of a, 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 re, a refitting of our goals at this point. Can we deter the North Koreans if they have a nuclear weapon? Can we say, well, you know, if you use it, we'll destroy you, and will they be a rational um, actor in this regard and respond to deterrence the way the Soviet Union and other adversaries who had nuclear weapons did during the Cold War. That's one way of looking at it. Um, could we diffuse the situation entirely if we rethought our defense agreement with South Korea, um, which is sort of the heart of the issue right now, uh, which is sort of a, the Korea is a, a frozen conflict. Um, but there are no real good options at this point. And I don't think that it's realistic to think that any negotiations will end the nuclear program in North Korea. That was the key point. And, uh, I mean, I think it's time for American you know, leaders to sort of level with the public about this. Let, let's uh, sort of uh, go one step deeper into this, if we can. Um, North Korea has already moved its... Uh, medium-range uh, missiles and its Scud missiles out of testing, and they put it into they put them into active service, and the range extends to South Korean port cities, military sites, as well as there's a U.S. Marine Corps air station in uh, Iwakuni in Japan. Uh, these missiles travel at well in the test 1,300 miles. Th this is and they don't have to be nuclear tipped to do a lot of damage. That's correct. Um, and this is the, the a big problem, which is that during the Clinton administration, they sort of broke up the negotiations into two different baskets. One was going to be, uh, you know, the, the nuclear program itself to get to the point where you could, you, could, you could yield a nuclear explosion. But the other was the missile program. And the missile program, they never got a deal on. Not only do the North Koreans, by the way, have developed these missiles and are threatening our forces in uh, East Asia, um, they also are proliferators. So they have helped other countries, we suspect probably with the Iranians, in developing their missile program. What's more, we found out during the George W. Bush administration that they were uh, sending technical experts to help Syria develop their own nuclear program. So North Korea is a real menace. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should invade the North, North Korea because of all the problems, uh, you know, that I mentioned before. But we really should start thinking about North Korea as the kind of problem that um, would be solved eventually through, um, you know, nonviolent, you know, democratic revolution, hopefully. Then and that's, I think that that, that, we're going to hope for that. Eli Lake, Bloomberg View columnist, is speaking about U.S. policy towards North Korea. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.